KZSU News Central, a relatively round table, our live weekly hyperlocal news show here Fridays at 5 here on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Hey, Punxsutawney Phil said it's spring. We're getting an early spring. And it really looks like that's happening outside, don't you think, Ishan? It does. It does. Uh, excited to excited to be in California. This is what I was promised. Exactly. That's why people are here. Before we get started, I'd like to quickly announce that beginning at midnight tonight, I highly suggest that you keep your dial tuned to 90.1 FM because midnight is when we start our KZSU Day of Noise, 24 hours of pure fun. So it would be great if you're with us at that time. I know I will be. It's going to be awesome and we are so psyched for it now coming up this hour we have part two of last week's campus discussion from san jose city officials and then alejandro navarro is debuting his new segment called community narrative so we're excited to bring you that but before we get to those we have the very latest with ishan gandhi i do so campus news from the last week uh we have here that a second case of coronavirus has been confirmed in santa clara county uh, this has been confirmed by Santa Clara County Public Health Department Director Sarah Cody at a Sunday press conference. Cody emphasized that while the county would see more cases, the risk to the general public continues to be low. Some background for those of you that haven't been following the news in the last few weeks. Coronavirus originated in Wuhan, China, and has since spread to infect 14,000 people in 23 countries, with over 300 deaths, leading some experts to say that the disease could become a pandemic, according to the New York Times. The latest case is the ninth case confirmed in the United States and the third in California. The case confirmed in Santa Clara was a woman who had traveled to Wuhan before arriving in the U.S. on 23rd January to visit family. Since arriving in California, she's left the house twice to seek medical care and her family members have been quarantined, Cody said. Cody said that the county could expect more cases. A second case is not unexpected. This is a direct quote. With our large population and the amount of travel to China for both personal and business reasons, we'll likely see more cases, including close contacts to our cases. Vice Provost for Student Affairs Susie Brubaker-Cole warned the student body of the dangers of fentanyl-laced counterfeit drugs in a campus-wide email on Friday. This message followed a January 17th Alert SU notification and a September 2018 health advisory from the County of Santa Clara Public Health Department about the dangers of counterfeit pills containing fentanyl. The Undergraduate Senate is, con- is concurrently discussing a response to opioids on campus. Uh, the subtext here, of course, being the recent death of an undergraduate student due to um, related substances. In Friday, Brubaker Cole urged students to read every word of her email, which included dangerous counterfeit prescription drugs in our community. The email included photos of the allegedly seized pills, as well as a scaled photo of two milligrams of fentanyl, enough to cause respiratory arrest and death. Brubaker Cole outlined three initiatives to start immediately confronting the problem of fentanyl on campus. The university will increase online prescription drug education, host community forums, and increase student drug screening and assessment for students seeking help through the Office of Alcohol Policy and Education. Citing concerns about affordability and accessibility, the Stanford Alumni Association recently announced that admission into the association will be free for all new graduates beginning with the class of 2020. Previously, lifetime admission into the Alumni Association cost $495 up front for new graduates, who also had the option to pay five annual installments that totaled $550. 
Admission fees for general alumni reached up to $695. This is a direct quote from the Alumni Association on their website. SAA determined that a new approach to membership was needed in order to advance the university's vision and ensure that all, all graduates have the same access um, to the same opportunities, regardless of ability to pay. An undergraduate-led engineering team uh, is Rebuilding Carter, which is, of course, the course planning website where students can read course reviews and create schedules to speed up response time and give the platform the capability to add new features in the future. Uh, that comes as good news to, to myself and, I guess, every single other undergrad on this campus. Uh, the Carter Lab team plans to release a beta version of Carter V2 this Sunday to work out any bugs in the system. Once the team trusts the system is highly stable and trustworthy, it'll, be, it'll roll out the platform to all students. About a year ago, when the Carter Lab team began to notice how slow the surface was, it came to a crossroads. It could either quickly modify the pre-existing code or invest in a complete rebuild. A rebuild would add longevity and portability to the system, along with speed. A team of Stanford students and alumni has raised thousands of dollars to send medical supplies to Wuhan, China and its surrounding areas, the epicenter of the coronavirus that has infected over 28,000 individuals in over 25 countries and has taken the lives of more than 560 people. As of Wednesday, the Stanford for Wuhan team, created by the Association of Chinese Students and Scholars at Stanford, has worked alongside other organizations to raise over $100,000. Stanford for Wuhan con contributed $15,000 um, of that total via GoFundMe donations. Chinese students and scholars were concerned about Wuhan's severe shortages of essential medical supplies, especially personal protective equipment, the co-president added. Thus, the Stanford Wuhan group was mobilized, which has six subgroups focusing on fundraising, hospital communication, supply list management, transportation, local contact, and publicity. Stanford Hospital is preparing to tweet potential coronavirus cases by setting up isolation areas and educating employees about safety precautions. This is this is, uh, yeah, nicely ties into what we heard earlier about the second confirmed case in Santa Clara. Um, but of course, as one of the Bay Area's largest medical centers, Stanford Hospital must be ready to address the outbreak, doctors say. But they remain optimistic that the virus will be concerned. Uh, Lucy Tompkins, the medical director, said that Stanford Hospital's approach to the current coronavirus is based on protocols created during the SARS outbreak in the early 2000s. Ahead of course registration opening for spring quarter this this uh, Sunday, a new civic engagement enrollment hold on Axis uh, presents students with an embedded form through which they can register to vote and requires students to check a box saying that they, quote unquote, acknowledge the recommendation of civic engagement before they can enroll in classes. Uh, to clarify, it doesn't, it doesn't require students to register to vote and the university won't store any data on which students do and do not, but it's uh, it's part of a broader push by the organization Stanford Votes to increase student participation in the 2020 election. Uh, I have here a quote from Michael Swerdlow, who's one of the leaders of Stanford Votes. The biggest thing we wanted to do was look at increasing voter registration on an institutional level and look at how we can integrate voting and voter registration and voter turnout into the institution itself and use some of the levers it has to reach every student. University fundraising once again tops a billion. Uh, its most recent Stanford's most recent fundraising results on Wednesday, um, with philanthropic gifts totaling 1.1 billion from September 1st, 2018 to August 31st, 2019. These donations come from more than 55,000 donors and will support a variety of academic and research activities, uh, as well as new construction projects and financial aid. That's all I have from this week's campus news. Uh, back to you, Ken.
Thank you very much, Ishan. Coming up after the break, we have Zoe Brownwood joined by Sonia Hansen in the studio to talk about Fossil Free Stanford, which uh, they have a week coming up next week for action. Uh, that in, in just a few minutes. Stay with us. Roundtable. I'm Ken Durr. I'm Ashan Gandhi. And joining us now at the Relatively Roundtable is Zoe Brownwood, joined also by Sonia Hansen, the video managing editor at the Stanford Daily. Thank you, all of you, for joining us. Thanks for having us. All right. Thanks for coming in. So, Zoe, first of all, uh, could you introduce yourself? Maybe tell us a little bit about your background and your involvement in Fossil Free Stanford. Yeah, I am a sophomore here at Stanford. Um, I'm studying comparative studies and race and ethnicity. Um, and I've been involved with Fossil Free um, for a little more than a year now. Um, I got involved during my first year here. Um, and I'm one of the student organizers. It's a non-hierarchical group. So um, we all kind of do um, as much as we're able to. What is Fossil Free Stanford? Um, in a nutshell, we are a student activism group um, that has been pushing the university to divest from fossil fuels, um, those being oil, natural gas, coal, which we were successful um, in getting the university to divest from in 2014, tar sands. Um, yeah, we basically um, are just encouraging um, better accountability um, with the endowment, the Stanford endowment. Um, yeah, we've been at it for about eight years now, um, along with uh, other campaigns all across the country and the world. What's the driving force behind this campaign? Um, we basically work within something called a climate justice framework, um, and it's this idea that um, countries, especially the United States, have a responsibility um, to take action um on climate change and institutions like Stanford have uh, a responsibility to take action on climate change um, because of our disproportionate impact or, um, yeah, impact on the issue. And it's this idea of inter international and both intergenerational justice, um, looking to um, work towards a livable climate for people all around the world and also for future generations. 
Um, is there extensive precedent for um, divestment from maybe other universities across the US and more broadly? Yeah, there. Um, it's a growing movement. Um, it's one of the fastest growing um, environmental movements. Um, we just saw Georgetown divest yesterday, actually. Back in September was a monumental divestment by the UC system, the biggest public divestment in history. They divested about $83 billion worth of assets. Um, and there are lots of other colleges that have divested, many colleges in the UK. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely a growing movement. So what is divestment? You know, I, I know that Stanford has an enormous endowment, but how much exactly and where are they putting these funds and what's the problem? Um, so divestment basically is a commitment to both remove current um, investments from the sector, the entire sector. So we're, our specific ask is for the top 200, the top 100 and the top oil companies. Um, so to remove any assets that are invested in, in companies um, that are part of the fossil fuel industry and then also a commitment to not um, invest in the future in those companies. Um, yeah, that's basically the what it is, like what it is, but also it, it becomes much more complicated with direct and indirect holdings that the university has and the way the endowment is managed through the Stanford Management Company. Um, Stanford right now has a $28 billion endowment. We actually don't know how much of that endowment is invested in fossil fuels because that information is proprietary, but um, there are some estimates that it's around like 7 to 11%. Um, that's a very rough estimate, though. Who at the university is involved with making that ultimate decision to divest, and what has been their response? Um, so the decision is entirely up to the board of trustees. Um, they basically there's a committee called the Special Committee on Investment Responsibility. Um, they do investigations into um, matters like ours, into divestment requests, um, or other concerns about the responsibility of, or of the responsibility of the board to invest ethically, um, and then they will make a recommendation to uh, the greater board, and, and ultimately they vote on whether to divest or not. Um, yeah. And then that, that once the board votes, then their decision is passed on to the Stanford Management Company, who actually implements divestment. Um, just to backtrack a tiny bit into something, no worries. Um, into something uh, you mentioned a little earlier. You mentioned that um, Fossil Free Stanford is a non-hierarchical group. Um, and I was interested, could you just elaborate on that and maybe also what you see as some of the benefits of that versus like a traditional structure of other organizations on campus? Yeah, so um, if you're familiar with VSOs or just student organizations in general, most of them have a operating like, president, a uh, vice president, um, financial officers. Um, and we operate under kind of a model that allows people to put in as much as they want in the group. Um, we do have people who head certain um, kind of like parts of our campaign. Like we have a more public facing part of our campaign that deals with direct action, publicity. Um, and then we have a more like administrative facing um, section that is deals much more with communication with the board, communication with the Office of Investment Responsibility. So we have people who head different projects within those, um, but we don't have like main leaders um, that are directing the group so that we can do make all our decisions um, 
through consensus, through um, through a more like participatory model rather than um, one or two leaders making decisions for the group. Talk a little bit about uh, the upcoming week of action. Uh, what is the rationale behind it and what do you hope to accomplish? And we'll maybe going a little into the planning stages of it and the background of this week of action. Yeah, we're really excited for this week of action. Um, the idea came from uh, National Fossil Fuel Divestment Day, which is going to be, um, there are going to be lots of events across the country um, on February 13th. It's There's this overarching um, uh, organization through the Better Future Project called Divest Ed that is like helping our campaigns across the country with strategizing. And so we've come together to organize like a uh, collective day of action. Um, and across the country, you'll see rallies and sit-ins and different types of direct action. Um, and our campaign decided to um, basically elaborate on that day and um, do something for the whole week. Um, and so we have different kind of like ideas for each day. One day is like an informational day where we're going to have a teach-in um, with uh, faculty and also Fossil Free members where we're talking about uh, fossil fuel divestment as well as um, just ethical investment, the history of the the fossil fuel industry. Um, and then one day we'll have kind of like a digital day of action where we can like we can send letters to the board encouraging divestment. Another day we'll have kind of like an art build in preparation for our rally. Um, and then on the actual day, National um, Fossil Fuel Divestment Day, we'll have a rally. And then we're also going to be staging a die-in um, yeah, kind of like a public art demonstration. And for those who don't know, what does a die-in look like? So a die-in is, um, it's a it's historically been used by many different movements. Um, the AIDS um, awareness movement, environmental movements, Black, Live Ma- Black Lives Matter, um, to name a few, um, lots of other movements as well. But it basically looks like instead of doing something prolonged, like a sit-in where, where you risk arrest, arrest, um, well, sometimes Dians do risk 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 arrest, but um, you basically lie in in like a very public location um, to bring attention to the harms caused by, um, in in our case, the fossil fuel industry. The democratic debate is happening right now as we speak. I, for one, do not know if they're focusing on climate change, but what is your opinion on the public discourse as of right now? I personally am really excited that climate change and um, has become, like come much more to the forefront of our politics. I think there needs to be a lot more discussion around environmental justice and not just focused on um, larger scale problems like climate change, um, global emissions, um, nationwide emissions. I think that there are a lot of... Um, things that are going on that kind of get overlooked when we focus only on the greater problem. But I am really excited that there are candidates with um, pretty um, uh, awesome climate plans. Your deadline for divestment is set for Earth Day of this year, which is in April. Uh, what obstacles do you have between now and then that you still have to accomplish? Is Earth Day realistic? given what's been happening? 
So our, our deadline for April is actually just for a commitment from the board um, for them to answer our proposal. Um, for a little bit, bit of background there, um, we submitted a divestment proposal, which was basically a 45-page long document explaining why divestment is necessary. We submitted that to the board last year um, on April 26th, I believe it was. And so we've given them basically a year to review our case and answer us. And then our ask is that within 90 days of that commitment, they divest all direct holdings. And then the majority of the holdings are indirect holdings. And we've um, we've asked that they divest um, entirely from those indirect holdings within five years of that commitment. The deadline, not we don't know if they'll actually get back to us. We, we are in communication with the board, mostly through the Office of Investment Responsibility. Um, we've had one meeting with them, which is actually incredibly disappointing. Um, they, they restructured their entire process, and they, their claim, their motivation behind restructuring the process was that there would be more student engagement, but there's actually been uh, much less. There are, no, there are no student members included on the task force that's, that's investigating divestment. Um, and so one of our, our asks that is not in our, our case for divestment, but it is, has arisen out of our um, kind of like deliberations and negotiations with the board is that two student, full student, vote, full voting members be put on the special committee for investment responsibility. Um, so I think transparency is a big, um, kind of like a big obstacle that we face in actually getting the board to respond to our ask. Um, we've heard that they're on track to respond to us. We were hearing that they were on track to respond to us by April, um, Earth by Earth Day. Um, but now we're starting to hear that they might be pushing that back to the end of the academic school year, um, which would not be great. But For community members who are interested in joining this effort, where should they go uh, who should they contact to get involved with Fossil Free, Fossil Free Stanford? That's a good question. We welcome any and all new members, first years, PhD students. We have a couple of grad students working with us right now. Um, we have uh, weekly meetings, general meetings on Tuesdays from 7 to 8. Historically, they've been in Column Bay, but it looks like we're going to be possibly moving to a different space. Um, but a really good resource is our social media. Um, we're on Instagram at Fossil Free Stanford. We're on Facebook at Fossil Free Stanford. Uh, we have a website, uh, diveststanford.org. Um, and if you want to reach out to me directly, uh, if you're on, like, if you're in the Stanford um, calendar or the, yeah, the Stanford contact list, you can reach out to me. My name is Zoe Brownwood. Um, yeah, but also you can reach us through our media. Um, yeah, we'd love to have people involved. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about fossil free Stanford, but I'm wondering what got you interested specifically in divestment because there's so many climate justice movements. Why divestment? It's a very economic approach to climate change. Yeah, so I I work with other groups on campus as well that focus on other areas of um, environmentalism or environmental justice. Um, for me, I think a lot of it was came from this tension of being at a university that in so many of our classes is talking about climate action, climate justice, environmental justice. Um, there's amazing faculty here researching um, the, about like the impacts of climate, the climate crisis. Um, but I just don't see that reflected in 
the way Stanford invests its money, um, and that's really hard for me to be at an institution like this, um, knowing that billions of dollars of this institution are funding um, exactly the industries that are causing this crisis that is um, just going to be so disastrous or is already so disastrous for so many people around the world. Um, so, yeah, I think I think the on-campus sustainability efforts are super important and I am also incredibly invested in environmental justice efforts both on campus and supporting groups um, that are not involved with Stanford, but I think that Stanford as like a leading institution needs to take a stand more than just with its own like internal campus. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a freshman, I took a winter quarter class with one of the faculty who's researching uh, most effective ways to respond to climate change. Um, his name was Frank Wallach and the class was energy, the environment mm. and the economy. Have you taken it? No, but I know the professor. <laughs> okay, so I was wanting to ask you what you thought of, because he had some opinions that aren't exactly what we've generally been hearing. Mm. He was of the opinion that divestment is not the most effective way to go about this. And uh, he shared with us this op-ed that he wrote for the LA Times about how Stanford shouldn't just be divesting, it should be pushing um, a carbon tax Mm. on its students. Have you heard of it? Yeah. Um, so there, like, oftentimes there's this argument that divestment isn't effective, that it's um, that there are much more effective ways to fight for climate justice or for climate action. Um, I climate or divestment is just one tactic in like an, an immense portfolio of tactics that we need to be using to address the climate crisis. I. I would never argue that divestment is the one thing that is going to solve this issue. It's much, much bigger than that. Um, but I think it the power that Stanford has as a knowledge-producing institution um, and as kind of like a, a leader in our country and in the world, um, I think, needs to be reflected in its investments. Um, yeah. I mean, divesting itself is not going to bankrupt the fossil fuel industries, but as more and more um, institutions begin to say, no, this is not something that we support, they're going to have to begin to start to change their business model to something that doesn't benefit off of the destruction of the planet. Mm -hmm. All right. Zoe Brownwood of the class of 2022 and of Fossil Free Stanford. Zoe, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ken. And thank you you, to you too, Sonia, for being with us from the Stanford Daily. Thank you, Ken. All right. Coming up after the break, we have local news and then Alejandro Navarro's Community Narratives segment. San Jose City Manager David Sykes, Deputy City Manager Kim Wallish, and Housing Director Jackie Morales-Ferrand convene in an Urban Studies Department panel discussion to talk about the housing crisis as well as the future of transportation in San Jose. Here is an excerpt from that conversation. Future and our residents on board. Um, I guess I'll start a little bit. So Kim, Kim talked about our growth plan it is, it is a focused growth in, in the downtown core and along the transit corridors because of the dynamic that Kim just talked about. We have to be committed to growing jobs so to, to kind of combat that imbalance. But we're in the middle of a housing crisis, so we also have to be committed to building housing. Um, 
for us, though, it needs to be a higher density level of housing for a multitude of reasons in terms of not just congestion relief, but because of the fact that a single family house does not gen enough, generate enough tax revenue to pay for the services that it receives from the city. So every single family house is actually a negative for us. Higher density housing generates enough, enough of a tax base to cover the, the, sort, uh, the services they receive. So it's, it's our, for our fiscal survival that we are committed to higher density housing um, as part of our, our growth plan. Our residents on board, not all of them. <laughs> so I think, you, you, you know, it's hard to broad brush it, but I think there are many in the community that are excited about this shift from suburban to urban environment. Um, and there's many in our community that are scared to hell of this shift of suburban to uh, urban environment. Um, and so, you know, that I think in my mind, San Jose does offer uh, the opportunity for this urban shift uh, along the, the growth areas that we've talked about. And, and there's obviously going to be a preservation of large single family neighborhoods in our community. Um, I think all are going to see some shift as we continue to grow as a city, but none, nonetheless, there is a tension that we live in uh, as we try to, to um, grow as a city, but also um, serve our current residents in a way that's meaningful. The other part I would just add is our growth plan has a pretty radical goal embedded in it as it comes to how we're going to move around and within the city. So right now, more than 80% of the trips that residents take every week are single driver in an auto. And our general plan is by 2040 to cut that in half. So to cut that down to 40%. So that means that a lot more people need to use transit, need to bike, and need to walk. So this is where you start to see the connections between how you use your land, how you build out your transit, and where your housing and where your workplaces are located. You can also see that we've got a lot of work to do to build out a connected transit and mobility system. So we have a light rail system, uh, which is not really well used at the time because we haven't really densified along the light rail corridor. We're also in the process of connecting to BART. So by the end of this year, BART will come down the East Bay and it will arrive in San Jose at the Berryessa station. But then we have to complete the work of taking it from Berryessa right into downtown San Jose into Deardon Station. So people need to have the transit available to them and they need to have a good experience using it. Uh, and it needs to go places that they actually want to go. We're also taking biking really seriously. So we're building out a protected bike network that starts in downtown San Jose and then extends out to um, neighboring um, neighborhoods. Uh, and we're also taking seriously that we want people to walk more. So there's a lot of emphasis on uh, streetscapes and designs of sidewalks and walking for health. Uh, and to be social and just to, to get around and making that pleasant, safe, and a desirable experience, not just in the downtown, but in our neighborhoods. 
And just to, you know, just to emphasize this, our residents on board, so even with the, the Better Bikeways program that Kim described, if you've been to downtown recently and hadn't been there for a while, it looks very different than a few years ago uh, in terms of our commitment to the bikeway system um, and all the way from uh, removing traffic lanes and committing them to bike lanes and having buffered protected bike lanes. Um, obviously, it's a much stronger network to support biking, but a lot of our residents, you know, I'm not sure they're, you know, really feel like uh, we're prioritizing uh, our efforts properly when, when they're losing a traffic lane and we're committing it to a bike lane. Um, so, um, you know, not all residents are on board with everything we're doing for sure. If I can add though, I mean, we've very much become part of the complete streets movement and we really believe our streets are not just for cars and our cities should not be so oriented around cars. They should be oriented around people. And people sometimes drive, but they sometimes bike, and they sometimes walk. And um, so we were trying to slowly help people think very differently that the public spaces should not just be for cars. But you can see that's deeply ingrained in our history, that auto orientation. What is your opinion? <laughs> and this is a good question for Kim, because she heads up all this work. What is your opinion of the Deerdon uh, Station area plan and the Google development, given its recent controversies? Where do the plans seem to be headed? Oh, I'm, I'm responsible for you know, all of the different aspects of what's happening in the Deerdon Station area, including the negotiations with Google. So let me just give you a little bit of context. So Deerdon Station is the, the downtown San Jose Caltrain station, right? And it, the station is literally 1935, kind of this cute little historic depot. And so the first really important part of context is that we have envisioned for a long time that, that the Deerdon Station, which is already the most important uh, transit hub in the South Bay, would hugely increase in, in importance over the next several decades as the transit service dramatically improves and the Deerdon Station becomes the crossroads where it all comes together. So what I'm talking about is the electrification of Caltrain, which will mean much more frequent, faster service. You are listening to the San Jose panel discussion, of uh, San Jose uh, personnel panel discussion that was held here last Wednesday uh, with uh, City Manager David Sykes, uh, a Assistant City Manager Kim Wallish and Housing Director Jackie Morales-Farrand. And they were talking about the growth that they would like to see in San Jose in the coming decades. Now, Alejandro Navarro joining us in the studio now to talk about his new segment that we're debuting. Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me. What's um, this one about? So this week I sat down to talk to actually some former teachers of mine uh, at my old high school, Gunn High School in Palo Alto. And um, we, I want, I talked to them about the newly um, initiated yoga program at the high school, and um, what it's like teaching yoga to high school students. So, I think, without further introduction, you can go for it. Let's hear it.
Welcome to Community Narratives, the segment where we talk with members of the community to hear the stories that help make up the places we live. My name is Alejandro Navarro. Having grown up in Palo Alto myself, I've gotten to experience firsthand how the rich diversity of elective classes offered in the Palo Alto school system helps students learn and enjoy school. Many of these classes, like auto shop, graphic design, robotics engineering, or criminal law, make learning more exciting and expose students to new interests that they might not have otherwise been able to explore. I wanted to understand more about how one of these unique elective classes came to be, so I sat down with Gunn High School teachers Diane Chikawa and Steve Ames to hear about their new yoga class and what it's like teaching yoga in a high school setting. My name is Diane Chikawa. When did you start practicing yoga? I started practicing yoga probably in my early 20s, so probably about close to 20 years ago, if not about 20 years ago. And how did you get started doing that? I went to a class for people who have scoliosis and thinking, okay, this, this could help out my back. It'll be great. And I actually really hated it. And then I went to another class thinking everything deserves a second try. And the teacher said, it's upside down day. Pull your mats to the wall. And everybody had to do handstands for nearly an hour. And it was one of the most enjoyable hours that I had had in a while. And so that there could be joy and challenge all put together in a practice seemed really fun. What are some of the different forms of yoga for the listeners out there? And what form of yoga do you teach? So there are loads of different kinds of yogas that are out there. Uh, There are the ones that are a little bit more on the trendy side, like Bikram and hot yoga, the things that are supposed to be a workout for you. There are the ones that are a little bit more restorative, literally called restorative yoga or sometimes yin yoga. There are postural yogas. There are loads of different things. Um, What I'm mostly trained in is tantric yoga, And so I tried to use that and vinyasa yoga as I'm teaching over at Gun. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that consists of? Tantric is just all-encompassing. It goes over pretty much every different kind of yoga. And so there's a little incorporation of a lot of different things within the class. The other thing that we're also trying to do is to teach muscular alignment and a proper alignment so that the students can make sure that they don't injure themselves whenever they get to a studio or do their own practices. So we're trying to do something that's a little bit more alignment focused while they're also flowing through different postures. Wow, Awesome. So I'm curious, when you think about the people who influenced you um, at the start of your yoga practice and later when you're becoming a yoga teacher, um, what what was their philosophy about yoga and what did you really take from them? So I should probably give a, a really big shout out to two of the teachers who really got me into yoga at the very beginning and those were Phoenix Artemisia and Mark Tanaka. Both of them were able to talk in a very calm sort of way that got me thinking about that there can be calm and physical challenge all together, like it's not mutually exclusive to each other. They also had these really great philosophies that they would share, you know, intermittently throughout the classes. And so that also was really appealing to me that you could do that without being preachy. And so that's always been kind of a a big thing, too. 
the other two teachers um, who've been really big influences for me as I've become a teacher of yoga myself have been Jill Glickbarg, whom I studied with in order to to get one of my accreditations, and Hannah Raftery, who's actually a Pali grad. So both of them are really into alignment focus and making sure that you're not going to injure yourself, but then they're also quite like Phoenix and Mark in that they can be philosophical without being preachy. And so I learned a huge, huge number of things from them. Tell us a little bit about the history of the yoga program at Gun. Sure. So I first started practicing yoga on my own and realizing, wow, you know, this is actually doing really great things for me physically as well as my mental well-being. And so I wanted to share it with others. So I started an after-school program mainly for staff around 2006 and just volunteering my time when... I had some students who found out about that. Then they said, hey, can we join? And, you know, with a little bit of perhaps some teacher discomfort, yes, and brought some students in because, you know, working out in front of your students is maybe a little bit humbling and <laughs> somewhat uncomfortable probably for both parties. Um, but it's it's been really great to see the students and the teachers together in learning and challenging themselves, challenging the others and cheering them on and, and so forth. So it's it's been a really great program after school, which I am continuing to do. And some teachers from other sites have uh, decided to come on over to to Gun if they can make it in time. And so it's been nice to have a, a community of people together. The progression, I guess, to moving it into being a class, because I could see so many great benefits and that there was some student interest, I figured it'd be really fun to kind of have a little bit more of an option in say PE or something like that or with our elective system so I pitched the idea to the the PE department about probably 10 or so years ago with I guess varied enthusiasm from them um, there was a, a a former leader of that department who was also kind of reluctant to to have a lot of changes and so I kind of you know every now and then would maybe bring it up with him and so after a while I got a little bit more of a tepid response and then kind of like a little bit more of a response until then I actually had a principal too who was really interested in having some sort of a yoga program on campus for the students and I think having the principal and then different leadership in that de- in the PE department also made a really big change and so she helped support me as I started to put all the paperwork together to pitch everything to the board and to to get this approved through the UC system how has the gun community responded to having this space here on campus for people to practice yoga so I've actually been really fortunate in the last several years. When I first started the after-school program, I was sharing the dance studio with the, the cheer team and the dance team, and that was always a little bit interesting because, you know, sometimes you'd have cheerleaders running into the practice uh, and being kind of on the loud side, which doesn't always work with yoga, and then also there would be basketballs bouncing in the next room over in the gym, so it was a little bit on the hard side, but then once... I was able to express that to the principal and then the facilities managers. They were actually able to find me better spaces. And so most currently, we now have a 
a converted portable. It's actually where we used to have a choir portable. And so it has a distinct classroom side where there are desks, and then there's a distinct side for where all the mats get laid out, and we can just do practice. And it it has been so great to have that space and the support of our PTSA and our administration who has been helping to buy us some materials for the room. And so it's been really great. Also, we've been able to open up the room during the parts of the day when we're not teaching yoga for any of the teachers who might need to go in and have a little bit of quiet space or if they want to meditate. And several teachers have definitely taken us up on that. So it's, I think, been pretty well accepted by the community. What does the program look like now? So the program now, it's, it's called Yoga and Mindfulness. And so at least twice a week, we'll do physical practice and breaking things down and teaching them how to, you know, actually move in a safe way, getting through the mechanics of things. In terms of the mindfulness part, probably about one day a week, we go over yogic philosophy and how that philosophy can then also help them be more mindful either on the mat or off the mat and in their their everyday sorts of activities. Wow. Sounds really powerful. Hopefully. (laughs) You talked about how your students have been showing the benefits of mindfulness and, and really stepping more into a mindful practice. Mindfulness practices like yoga and meditation are really making a surge in this U.S popular cultural moment right now i'm curious do you see yourself here with what you're doing at the gun yoga program as part of a broader movement i think i do and at the same time i I feel really conflicted over it it's taking this ancient medicinal practice or what can be seen as a medicinal meditative practice and bringing it into a setting that is a little bit different it feels a lot like cultural appropriation and so for a long time I've had this doubt about what I'm doing and it doesn't always feel like I'm doing the right thing so definitely when I I hear from my students how they've benefited it does make me feel better about it at the same time I, I still grapple with it so it's hopefully overall supposed to be what I'm doing Um, and I'm doing the right thing. So a lot of times people think that teachers are supposed to have all of the knowledge and have the answers and transmit it down to their students. Um, But in my experience, I've come to know that teachers do a lot of learning too. And I'm curious, do you ever learn anything from your students when you're teaching yoga? Absolutely. I think that that's one of the best things about teaching is that you have this reciprocity between the two parties, right? It's not just a one-way channel. And so particularly when we get to go over things like philosophy, it, it gets to this point where, you know, you're just having these very deep conversations with people who I think a lot of society just kind of dismisses as like, oh, well, what do they know? They're 16. But I mean, you've got these 15 and 16-year-old kids who have these incredible beliefs and ways of seeing the world that I think a lot of us, maybe we once saw it that way, but we've forgotten how to see things with wonder or they see things in a fully different way because they're just different in that one, they're different people and two, they're in a very different society than what we probably grew up in. 
So they they teach me new things constantly. <laughs> That's awesome. Steve Ames is an, another PE teacher here at Gunn High School, and you've been working to uh, mentor him in in teaching yoga to help expand the program and and also help him be a yoga teacher right and uh, so what's it been like mentoring another teacher i am so proud of steve he has made these incredible leaps and bounds um so our principal pulled us into a meeting and she knew that she wanted to make sure that this program was going to be a success and that we had so many students who were enrolled. We actually had to push some out because we didn't have enough people to take or to teach the classes. And so uh, Steve actually came on board, but the caveat being that he had never taken a yoga class in his life. And so this was told to me in the spring. So we spent summer going to a class uh, and for Steve, I mean, he had to download apps and videos and learn from from those. And then I would see him over the summer and we'd plan. And as I was saying, I mean, he had never taken a class in his life. And before we got started, he could maybe barely touch his toes. And now he can get his hands flat on the floor. He has this incredible ability to just pick up on on things so quickly and you know we we work really well together especially you know when we're doing discussions which can be sometimes difficult because you might be in one rhythm and the other person's in a different beat and so he he and I were we work really pretty well together as I was saying though too I mean he he just has this incredible capacity to learn and pick things up really fast so whether it's the physical practice in his own alignment and being able to cue that alignment for the students or if it's learning the philosophy and then being able to put that philosophy into practice he's so sharp and so it's been really great working with him that's awesome it sounds like you guys have a really great partnership yeah it's pretty good at least I think so I hope he does too <laughs> I talked to Steve Ames to get his perspective. How would you characterize your experiences um, apprenticing under Diane in the yoga program? Um, it's been really a positive thing. Um, I don't know if there's many people who are going to have the same opportunity I did because I happen to have an instructor who's been teaching for 20 years as my you know, master teacher. So both you and Diane co-teach the yoga class, and I'm wondering how do your teaching styles differ when you're teaching yoga? <laughs> She's, she is dynamic. I mean, I'm still only in my second year of teaching yoga, and I teach um, PE from a perspective of how I've always taught it. You know, we do a warm-up and we do things, and we go through and we do a lot of demonstration, but my language is not as colorful as hers. And an example is, like, when we'll be taking a really nice, deep breath, she'll say something like, oh, make this breath really deep and velvety in your back of your throat. In fact, put some texture into the breath, and and I sit there often going, how does she come up with this? I mean, just her vocabulary is so much greater than mine. And I know she's an English teacher, but her descriptions just flow so well. So I often find myself writing down words she does so that I can use it and feel like, oh, yeah, I'm almost as good as Diane. (laughs) And what do you tend to focus on when you're teaching? Mine is more on 
um, the form itself. So uh, when we go into like a warrior two stance is making sure the alignment of their uh, back foot is parallel to the back of the mat, that their lunge is deep enough so it should be three to four feet apart, that their knee is not extending in front of their toes but also not leaning to the inside, so it's leaning slightly to the outside um, towards the pinky toe, and then they stand upright. So I look more at the physical form to make sure the proper alignment is there so they don't get injured. No one's gotten injured, so in two years I think we have a pretty good track record. (laughs) That's great news. In what ways have you seen your students benefit from the class? So last year and this year, I've definitely had some students who have come up to me and said that, you know, if their backs have been hurting or if their legs are tight from either you know track or soccer or something like that, that they're no longer having those kinds of pain. So all of that's been really nice. The other thing, though, that I think is actually quite a triumph is that they've they've talked about how they're a little bit more mindful in how they interact with other people or how they talk to themselves about like you know their attitude toward things or how they're studying or whatever so it's it's been really pretty great to see those kinds of mental shifts happening as well like attitude shifts that sounds really transformational hopefully so yes Um, What kind of changes have you seen in your students or what have you seen your students get out of doing yoga? Well, um, most of the students seem to get a lot out of it in terms of they they like coming. Um, I can think of one particular student right now who was in a class of mine last year and she was teetering on that D, D plus, C minus, you know, in that whole year. And when she registered for the class this year, because you do have to pass PE, I said, well, she qualified. But I was kind of concerned that, oh, she's going to cut again. She had this. And she has really, I would say probably about from the first quarter on, all of a sudden something clicked. And she just started smiling when she would just do practice. And she would push herself and enjoy it. And you can truly see that she likes doing this. And none of that she smiles in class and she says I really like this class and that was not who she was last year what's one thing that you wish more people understood about yoga I really wish that people knew that it was for everybody that it's not just for the flexible like you can get flexible by taking yoga just ask Steve Um, you can get stronger you can have better mental clarity better ideas of what you can do with your life off of your mat, things like that. Um, I, again, just wish that people knew that they didn't always have to, you know, be at the gym lifting 500 pound weights in order to be fit, you know, that there are lots of other ways that it could go and not that yoga needs to be a workout. I just think that that's probably the best entry point here in America, that there's a lot more to it than just getting on a mat and sweating a lot and, um, yeah, just that there's there's a lot of aspects to it, and so there's got to be something that everybody, anybody could latch on to. That's all for this week. Thank you for tuning in to my first show. And thank you for taking a seat with us at the Relatively Round Table. You can always find a full recording of our show online on our Twitter page, at Relatively Round. Alejandro Navarro is actually in the studio with us. We will say goodnight to you. I'm Ken Durr. I'm Alejandro Navarro. And on behalf of Ishan Gandhi, 
Darlene Franklin, who was away today, Sonia Hansen of the Stanford Daily, and the rest of our good friends at the Stanford Daily. Have a wonderful weekend. Enjoy the beautiful weather outside. And we'll see you next week.